rest of us, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, an amazing book. Right in the middle of your New Testament there, just after Ephesians and right before the book of Colossians. Now, last week, uh, Forrest did a wonderful job closing out chapter 2, talking about Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the importance of partnering together for the advancement of the gospel. I, I think he used one of my favorite illustrations as well that I've ever heard in my life. Um, he, he talked about the greatness of the Oklahoma Sooners, <laughs> right? Um, uh, uh, and, and, and their softball team and how they partnered together uh, for a national championship, as I get rid of this fly here, um, I, I he, he was two minutes into the sermon, and I thought, greatest sermon ever. This is uh, awesome, um, and I thought that for obvious reasons. Um, but now we get to chapter three. I, I, I love what he touched upon, this idea and theme of partnering together for the advancement of the gospel, along with a the theme of joy. These are the two main themes that you see a lot in this book. We get to chapter three, and it, it, in fact, we're, we're going to walk through the first half of this chapter today. Um, And then next Sunday, we'll look at the back end of uh, the chapter. Um, FYI, where we're going today, I'm all in. I mean, I'm all in on this chapter. I um, haven't always been. Uh, I I can think of uh, times in my life, particularly in uh, early in my walk with Jesus where I would have sat where you sat, heard the preacher preach this text, and I would have yes and amen. But a week later, would have just kept living the life that Paul warns about here. I'm certainly still a work in progress, but I got to tell you, I am utterly convinced of the truths that Paul expounds on today in this chapter. I mean, just convinced. I'm all in. Okay, which I, I think is much better than the alternative because I don't, I don't think you'd want me to be up here and read this and be like, yeah, I'm not really into what Paul's saying here. I mean, so I, uh, I trust that the Spirit would work among us as he's worked in me. Now, let's go. Um, look at verse 1 with me. We're in Philippians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. And all I want you to see right now is that first word. Right? You see it? See that first word? Almost everyone in here is looking at the word finally. Almost everyone in here. You're looking at the word finally. Now, now let's do this. And if if you have paper, this will really work. Look through the letter and go to the end. All right? I'm going to just flip to the end, right? How many chapters in the book of Philippians? Four. Right? Now go back to the word finally. This is the beginning of chapter 3, right? The beginning of chapter 3. So he's telling us now finally halfway into a sermon. Right? He's he's just halfway into his sermon. Halfway into this letter. I don't think that's the right word, Paul. Right? I, I don't think you're using the right word. Um, 
some, some people say that Paul is your stereotypical preacher here, that uh, he, he, he's saying, in conclusion, and he still has 30 minutes to go, right? Some of you may have the word further, and that's probably a bit better of where he's going. Like, oh, okay, that, that's a bit better of where Paul's intention is here. Maybe the best phrasing here is, so then, or now then, right? Um, this word finally signifies a new section, all right? He, he's been talking joy and partnering together. Uh, we, we had that great Christological passage there in, at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul still has lots more to say, and he's about to say it. Um, he, he's about to say it. So we've talked about joy, talked about partnering together for the advancement of the gospel. Now, moving on. I um, recently heard a song that helped me think through this passage. Um, ever since college, Kendra and I have really, really loved this little music group um, of two guys that go by the name of Shane and Shane. Okay? I, I see some head nods, so you're with me, all right? Um, one Shane started at Tech in Lubbock. He then moved to A&M and College Station, and when he was in College Station, okay, so we're not just Sooners today, we're, we're okay? Um, when he's in College Station, he meets a, another guy named Shane, and boom, they're Shane and Shane, all right? They started doing music together, um, and then for the last 20-ish years, uh, they have produced some of the most God-honoring, Christ-exalting songs that I've ever heard. Um, and, and so there's something. that If you lived in our house, it, there's something that you would hear Kendra and I say 25 to 30 times a week. Alexa, play Shane and Shane. Right? I mean, you, you hear that all the time, right, Ava? Alexa, play Shane and Shane. Um, now, all right, we can be a bit eclectic in our house with what we listen to, right? A judgment-free zone, okay? Some, some days it might be Alexa play the Greatest Showman soundtrack, right? Um, or some Michael Jackson. Or um, a, a couple weeks ago I said, Alexa, uh, play America the Beautiful by Ray Charles, because oh, it's a patriotic mood, right? It's the 4th of July. Which, FYI, um, that song by... The, the version by Ray Charles, is playing in the greatest 4th of July scene in cinematic history. You know what I'm talking about. You got me. It's the fireworks scene during the movie The Sandlot. Okay? I said, play America the Beautiful by Ray Charles. Kendra's like, really? I'm like, yeah, huh? really. Like, what you got against Ray Charles? This song during this scene in this movie I mean, they're, they're playing baseball under the lights of the fireworks. I'm just, I'm, yes, sir. Let's go play baseball and watch fireworks. It's awesome. So go watch that, right? Now back. I'm Shane Shane, sorry. Um, we listen to a lot of different stuff in our house. But we've got some staples. Music that we play over and over and over again. And Shane and Shane is one of those staples. And so a few weeks ago, there was a song that played that isn't typically in the playlist that we hear. 
And I paid special attention to it because it immediately brought back memories to when I first heard it. Like 15 years ago. It was a song called Yearn. Yearn. Here's a bit of how that song goes. Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you and only you. Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you and only you. Lord, I want to yearn. Oh, you give life and breath. In you we live and move. That's why I sing. Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you and only you. Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you and only you. Lord, I want to yearn. That's how that song goes. Uh, when I first heard that song, um, I, I, I actually remember it was the summer after I graduated college, and um, I thought, that's a funny word. Like, yearn? That's a, that's a funny word. Like, like, nobody says that word. Uh, nobody sitting in here today was going to use that word in their vocabulary today. And so I think, why use that word? Who in here says, I yearn for that? Like, I yearn for that. No, we say, oh, I want that. I uh, desire that. Uh, I might long for it. Um, I'm hungry for it. I might thirst for it. A few weeks ago, I took um, Carter and Grant to the mall. Carter was looking for a new pair of shoes. And so um, we're walking in the mall, and we're a bit hungry. And um, so we stop at one of those pretzel places. Um, I think it's Wetzel's Pretzels, right? Um, and so I asked the boys what they want, and they both said they wanted one of those, like, round pretzels with the hot dog in it, okay? Um, so I tell the cashier I want two pretzel dogs and then a regular pretzel for me. Um, and so he hands me the food. Um, uh, he rings me up. Then we're on our way. We don't get 10 steps. I kid you not. I look over at Carter. He doesn't have his pretzel dogs. I'm like, son, what, where's your food? I thought I, you know, I thought I gave it to you. He's like, oh, you did. I ate it. I'm like, what you mean you ate it? He's like, I, yeah, I ate it. I was hungry. I'm, I could eat five more. So I'm thinking, okay, Joey Chestnut, uh, when you said you wanted a pretzel dog, I don't think that was the right word. Like, you didn't just want a pretzel dog. There's another word for that, man. When I first heard that song, Yearn, at 22 years old, I thought, what a funny, strange word. Today, I hear that, that's the right word. 
That is totally the right words. I, I, I get it. That's the right word to use. I want to yearn for him. Uh, in fact, that, that word, yearn, it's a word that the Apostle Paul has already used in Philippians. He used it in chapter 1 and verse 8. He tells the church how he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. It, in your version, you might have the word long for, but the ESV here says yearn. I love that. Um, when Antonio preached it a, a, a few weeks ago, he, he, he mentioned that Paul was longing for them, longing for the church from his inner organs, longing from his liver, his guts. Uh, elsewhere in Scripture, in Isaiah 26, the people of Judah sing to God, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. In Jeremiah 31, which is a very pivotal chapter in the Bible, God's speaking of his people, that, and he says, My heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on my people. The word has this connotation of being restless, of like being almost agitated, of, or even growling, yearn. Yearn. It, it's a word I can feel like when I hear it. Like, what does it mean when, when a word sounds like it, it is? Like, onomatopoeia? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? When a word sounds like the word, I kind of, it's kind of like that. Yearn. And here's the thing when Shane and Shane sing that song and they sing it the way they do, I believe them. I believe they yearn for God. They sound like they are singing. It's filled like this angst. Like, I want you, God. I got to have you. My soul cries out for you. Well, this is where Paul's going in Philippians 3. There is nothing that compares with the Lord. Nothing. Every other thing, even things that are good things, they fail in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus because of his goodness, because of his grace, because of his mercy, because he is rich in love, he's worth all your yearnings, all your longings. He is worth the highest of your affections. And so before we read this, one question. Have you ever noticed that people who appear to be the most self-sufficient, the people who appear to have it all together, the people who appear to rely on their self and never not need anything, have you ever noticed those people never yearn for anything? Have you ever noticed the most self-sufficient people never yearn for anything? Um, in fact, you probably see this at Christmas time. What do you get for the person that has everything? They never want anything. They never need anything. And even if they did, they'd just go get it themselves. Let's go. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. 
if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a text. What do you treasure, church? Like what, what is it that you treasure? Is there anything in your life that has surpassing value? This passage is important because it tells us what it means to, to know Jesus. What, what it means to find eternal salvation, the most important thing. What it means to have ultimate satisfaction in life. It, it reminds us of our need to stay focused on the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Buddha, the religious leader of Buddhism, we actually have his recorded words from his deathbed. Like his last words before he died. Right before he died, his last words are recorded as this. He is telling his people, Behold, O monks, this is my advice for you. All things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. So, work hard to gain your own salvation. 500 years later, after Buddha's death, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, a sinless man who claimed to be God himself, which leads, leads him to die a gruesome death on a cross. Well, we have his last words recorded, too. Just before he breathed his final breath, he says the words, It is finished. It is finished. To telestai, it's that great, great Greek word, to telestai. It's a word that means paid in full. You cannot earn salvation. It is a gift to be received, and we have a tendency to forget that, every one of us. We tend to revert back to a life of wanting to earn what we have or what we don't have. And so did the Philippian church, which is why Paul comes out so strongly against a group of people who apparently were a lot like Buddha. And telling this church, this Philippian church, that salvation had to be earned. Look at verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So he's saying, look out, look out, look out. Beware, beware, beware. Paul is in warning mode here. He, he cautions them three times to look out for certain people who are going to steal their joy. He says to be, be aware of who? Dogs. Dogs? Dogs. You might be saying, wait, wait a minute. What's wrong with dogs? Lovable, furry, domestic creatures. Man's best friend. Well, to think that way is to read with our Western eyes, isn't it? Uh, because when Paul refers here to dogs, he ain't talking about your puppy named Penny. He isn't talking about rebel, rebel-y, rebel, rebel Yes, is that how you say it? Uh, he isn't talking about the large Scooby-Doo stuffed animal that I won Kendra at the Oklahoma State Fair 20 years ago for hitting a three-point shot. He isn't talking about pretzel dogs at What's the Pretzels. In that time, dogs were usually wild scavengers. They were wild, vicious animals that roamed the streets in packs, going from garbage pile to garbage pile to garbage pile. They could at times attack innocent people and spread disease. To refer to another human as a dog was to actually insult them as among the lowest in the social scale. And Paul refers to these people as dogs, right? So, so who are they? They, they were per particular Jewish teachers known as Judaizers. Uh, they were teachers who would come into the church and, and do damage. They would just damage the church because what they would do is they would mark their faith in Christ. They would say that, hey, here's how to have faith in Christ. They would mark it by what they do and what they don't do. And so then they would make lists of all those things that they did great and all the things that they stayed away from and then use those lists as some sort of evidence of their salvation or their superior spirituality. I do this. I don't do that. That makes me better than you. They are evildoers, is what Paul says. They are mutilators of the flesh. In fact, this was probably the number one thing this group pointed to when they talked about their faith. In, in Acts 15, we read about them. It says, but, but some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in the next verse there in Acts 15, it says that Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas heard that, and they had no small dissension and debate with them. Right? I, I can imagine Paul hearing these Judaizers say that in order to be saved, they had to be circumcised, and him going, I'm sorry? Huh? What did you say? It, it says that Paul had dissension and debate with them, and it wasn't small. You see, there were some Jews that were willing to accept Jesus as Messiah, but they wanted to hold on to some, some Judaism and some laws of Moses. They believed that Gentiles had to become Jews before becoming Christians. And so what that involved was circumcision. 
and following Mosaic law. And Paul ain't having it. Those that come in here and tell you that, Philippi, they're dogs. They do evil. They mutilate the flesh. They go around like ravaged dogs, spreading this awful message like a deadly disease. It's deadly. They steal joy. They corrupt the truth by saying that you need to add to the gospel. But when you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. The message of the gospel is not Christ plus your good works. The message is Christ and Christ alone. And here's the, the kicker. The term dog was actually a common slur that the Jewish had for the Gentiles. It, it was the Judaizers that would often refer to those outside their faith as dogs. And so when Paul calls them dogs, what he is essentially saying is, who are you calling a dog? Dog. Did you know that the devil wants to destroy your confidence in Christ? He wants to destroy your confidence in his sufficient work on the cross. These are people who think they are servants of Christ, but in fact are servants of Satan. Watch out for that kind of faith. It's empty. When your confidence lies in anything but Christ, your joy has been stolen. So, who let the dogs out? The devil did. The father of lies. That's who. I don't think Shane and Shane have a version of that song. Paul keeps going. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision, he says. Hey, hey, church, we're actually the people those people think they are. Whatever external circumcision was a sign of, we've experienced that internally within our hearts. God has ministered by his spirit to our hearts. And because of that, we are new creations. Paul says in Galatians 6.15, for, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Have you been circumcised? Who cares? Oh, you haven't been, cir- uh, you haven't been circumcised? Who cares? It doesn't matter. We don't need circumcision. We don't need mutilation. We need regeneration. And that is something you do not do. God does it, and he does it in your heart. He keeps going. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You want to know what a true, true Christian is like? That's a really good list right there. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And we put absolutely zero, nada, zilch, none, no confidence in the flesh. Point blank period. We glory in Christ. We boast in Christ. We take pride in Christ. And that really is the crux of the matter here, isn't it? We have Judaizers who, when it comes to salvation, put their confidence, their reasons for being saved, not into Christ, but into things about themselves. I'm a good person. I'm better than you. That game is a losing battle. You know how Paul knows that? Because he's Paul. 
When it comes to being able to boast in the flesh, he's better than all of them. Paul tells them, if you want to brag, I can brag too. Who cares about all that you've done, what you're doing, who you are? I've been all that too. I'm even better than you. You see, the Judaizers would appeal to their impressive credentials, which were indeed impressive. But now it's time for Paul to flash his own resume. He says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So now Paul is reflecting on his flesh. There's an element of boasting here. Essentially, if anyone else wants to boast about their achievements, then hey, get back, get in the back of the line. Because ain't nobody better than me. Quite simply, if anybody could find salvation through his self-righteousness, it was Paul. And the things he lists here, things that he used to put confidence in prior to him coming to Christ, can be broken into two groups. The first four things are based on his birth, and the last three are based on his accomplishments. Each of these things here provide a warning for for us all. Let's go through them. The first warning here is don't put your confidence in a ritual. Don't put your confidence in a ritual. He says, first off, he was circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision is at the heart of his disagreement. And so Paul begins here with guns blazing. You see, Mosaic law required that a Jewish baby boy was to be circumcised, which was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his people according to Genesis 17. In Leviticus 12, the expectation of that circumcision was for that to happen on the eighth day. And so, when it comes to circumcision, Paul is literally saying, I'm an eighth dayer. So, not only have I done the right rituals, I've done the right rituals rightly. And there were some converts to to Judaism that could never make that claim. But a ritual cannot save your soul. We might put our confidence in rituals, like being baptized. And being baptized rightly. Or maybe you were dedicated to the Lord in a special church service when you were a baby. For some of us, these can be external markers that we point to or rest in, but these things cannot give you a right standing with God. Your confidence must come from Christ and Christ alone. Here's another. Don't put your confidence in your nationality. He goes goes on. He was born of the people of Israel. Literally, he was of the race of Israel. He was a physical descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wasn't a Gentile convert to Judaism. He was the real thing, if there was. Israel was God's chosen nation, but we learn later in the New Testament that true Israel is not based on ethnicity or citizenship of a nation, but on faith in Christ. Your nationality or ethnicity cannot give you a right standing before God. 
Your confidence doesn't come from Abraham. It doesn't come from Uncle Sam. Our confidence comes from Christ and Christ alone. He goes on. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the tribe of Benjamin. So, don't put your confidence in your lineage. In your lineage. Not only was Paul of Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Right? So when the kingdom of Israel divided, they divided into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And when that happened, of the twelve tribes, there were two that remained loyal to King David and his people. One was Judah, and the other was Benjamin. In fact, Jerusalem, the capital holy city, was situated in the land of, guess who? Benjamin. So, Paul's saying, hey, not only am I of Israel, I'm part of a distinguished tribe within Israel. He came from a really good clan. You know who else was from this clan? From the tribe of Benjamin? The first king of Israel. The one before David. You remember him? Remember his name? His name was Saul. So, I can imagine when Paul's parents are sitting down to figure out what to name him, Hey, hon, what should we name this baby? Hmm, let's keep it in the family. Can you think of anybody in Benjamin's line? I got it. Let's, let's go with the first king of Israel. Let's call him Saul. There isn't a better name for a Jewish boy than Saul. What a, what a great name. I, uh, I get it all the time. I tell, my people, I tell people my name is Saul, and I get one of two things. One, I get, when are you changing your name to Paul? Okay. And I always tell them I've never heard of that, and they're always so happy to know that they're the first person in the world to think of that joke. The second thing I get is they ask if I'm Jewish. If I'm Jewish, it's a great Jewish name. And I always have to break their heart. No, Mexican, bro. <laughs> having the right family, having the right name, cannot give you a right standing before God. Your confidence doesn't come from having the right great-great-grandfather or the right family tree. It has to come from Christ and Christ alone. Another, don't put your confidence in your upbringing. Paul says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew of Hebrews. He was raised according to Hebrew tradition, even though he was from Tarsus, which was Greek. He was fluent in Hebrew. He did not abandon his Hebrew culture. He read the Torah, his Old Testament Bible, and he could do it in its original language. And the reason he was able to do that is because he was raised to. He had a great teacher. In the same way, we might have been raised in a great Christian home. I'd imagine that'd be many of your stories. We might have gone to a great Christian school. I imagine that would be many of our stories. But those things cannot give a right 
give us a right standing before God. Our confidence doesn't come in memorizing the Ten Commandments or learning all 66 books of the Bible. Our confidence comes from Christ and Christ alone. And so then he moves into things about his own personal commitment. The, the, the first four things are about things he inherited, things he had no control over. And so now Paul is going to list some things that he did have control over and learn even these things cannot earn your place with God. He says when it comes to the law, he was a what? A Pharisee. Hmm. Don't put your confidence in your spiritual eliteness. Don't put your confidence in your spiritual eliteness. Uh, the term Pharisees means separated ones. Uh, Pharisees love their rules and adding to their rules, and they love measuring people according to those rules. And so this would lead to a clear distinction between them and Gentiles. It, it were two different groups. It led Paul to believe that he belonged to a morally superior group of Jews. Do you ever say, Lord, thank you that I'm not like them? Which is essentially what the Pharisee in Luke 18 prayed, right? Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to the heavens. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What a prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, that man, meaning the tax collector, went down to his house justified. The other, meaning the Pharisee, mm -mm. for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, thank you I'm not like them. We do this to other believers too, don't we? It's just me. It's just me. We, we point out things about ourselves and about other believers that make us feel like we're better Christians. Or we, we make those things to be evidences of salvation altogether about where we attend church, about what we believe about secondary or tertiary things, about how we vote. Lord, thank you I'm not like that kind of Christian. If they even are. Listen, I, I know you love Redeemer. I know you pray for Redeemer. But do you love and do you pray for the church down the street? Or do we criticize it? Being a part of the right denomination cannot give you a right standing before God. Our confidence doesn't come from having the right minor theological affiliations. It comes from Christ and Christ alone. He says, as to zeal, 
He was a persecutor of the church. A persecutor of the church. Don't put your confidence in your passion. At least your passion about the wrong things. Salvation doesn't come by passion. We are passionate about lots of things, aren't we? You, you might hear this claim, it, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're passionate about it, as long as you're sincere about it. Listen, we can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Paul was so filled with enthusiasm about God that it led him to persecute the church. He was passionate for what he perceived to be the things of God. Uh, post-conversion, he, he told the church at Rome in Romans 10 that, he, that some have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, just like him. Being a passionate person cannot give you a right standing before God. Our, our confidence doesn't come from our zeal. Our confidence comes from Christ and Christ alone. And then the last thing he lists. He says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He was blameless. Don't put your confidence in your morality. Paul is saying that his life was second to none when it came to obeying Old Testament law. He was a self-righteous person. He boasted in his ability to keep the law. Who can keep God's law? I can. I can do it. Put me in, coach. When it, when it comes to living a good and moral life, I'm the star and everybody knows it. But while living the perfect moral good life is impossible, even that cannot save you. It cannot give you a right standing before God. Our confidence must come from Christ, his perfect and sinless life, his death for our sins, his bodily resurrection, his right now reigning in power at the right hand of God, interceding for us as we speak. And so, Redeemer, where are you placing your confidence? What are you trusting in to earn righteousness? It is entirely possible for us sitting here today to put together a list just like Paul put together. Maybe you point to your baptism and the amazing correct theology that you shared in your baptism video. Maybe you point to your ethnicity or your citizenship of a Christian nation. Maybe you come from a family with a long line of pastors and missionaries. Maybe your husband or dad is the pastor of your church. Maybe you're on staff at your church. Maybe you fill in preaching while your pastor is on sabbatical. Maybe you point to the fact that you are the pastor of your church. Maybe you point to your amazing, logical, enlightened mind that has led you to know the, the correct theological differences that we've had in over 2,000 years in the history of the church. Maybe you point to your zealous, passionate defense of what you perceive to be truth. Maybe you expose what you perceive to be error. Or maybe you point to the fact that you're just a really good person. Every single one of us has a tendency to point these things as reasons to prove our righteousness. And if we're honest, some of us might not be happy with what we just said. 
We do that because of our fallen human hearts. And Paul says that no genuine Christian puts their hope in these things. He opens verse 7 with the word but. He's about to tell us, you know, I used to, hope, I used to put my hope in these things, but let me tell you where I am now, where I am today. One commentator says this next section, how Paul ends his argument here, is what he calls the essence of Pauline theology. It's the essence of Pauline theology. Uh, Paul, after his conversion, is so incredibly Christ-centered. And I think if I could sum up how he ends this, I would say this section is just so Christian. It's just so Christian. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, you might be thinking there are some things on Paul's list that he just listed or some of the things that we mentioned that are actually good things. And yes, they are. Like, you know, we might be a little too hard on some of these things. But, But look, Paul goes even harder. When it comes to putting confidence in those things, as the standard of your righteousness. These things are considered loss. Loss. He says, whatever gain I had, meaning there could have been other items I could have added to the list, I could have kept going, and all those things that I thought would gain me acceptance with God, all those things that I thought were advantages, yeah, they're actually disadvantages. Uh, Recently, someone owed me some money. And so they wrote me a check. It was for about $1,000, okay? And uh, so what I did is I get my phone, open up my banking app, and then I take a picture, right? And it gets deposited into my account. It's awesome, right? You don't even have to go to the bank anymore to deposit checks. Well, a few days later, I get an email from the bank. You already know what it said. There were insufficient funds in the account that the check was written from. And so here I am thinking that I had my $1,000 in my account that was owed to me, but now I actually don't have the $1,000 in my account that was owed to me. But not only do I not have my $1,000, I was being charged, I was being charged an additional $35 because the account that the check was being written from didn't have the money the account that I had no control over. Instead of being up 1,000, I'm down 35. And so what Paul is saying, you think these things are getting you somewhere, but they're actually taking you further away from where you think you're going in the first place. Uh, Here's another way to put it. I read this illustration in a book I'm reading. It's called The Secular Creed by Rebecca McLaughlin. She uses this illustration to make a point, a different point, but I think it works here. She talks about watching an episode of Planet Earth. You know that that show? Um, I think sports and Planet Earth are the two reasons why we have awesome TVs in our houses. Okay, right? 
there was an episode that she was talking about where this baby elephant got separated from its mother in a sandstorm. I mean, just the saddest thing ever. Uh, the elephant herd was on this long, exhausting trek to find water. And then a sandstorm hits. Baby gets lost. But then after the sandstorm, a miracle happens. The baby picks up the mother's tracks. Yay! But as the camera pans out on this lonely baby elephant, the narrator tells us the painful truth. The baby was following the tracks in the wrong direction. When we place our confidence in anything but Christ, we're a lot like that baby elephant. When we can rejoice in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, we have found the tracks in the right direction. When we, like Paul, can call our religious accomplishments and our religious background, when we, like Paul, can call them filth, like he does here, or rubbish, then Paul will tell us, amen, brother, amen, sister. All those other things he considers dung compared to knowing Christ. That's, that's the word the King James uses. It is a vulgar term. It's supposed to be vulgar. You're supposed to be blown away by what he's saying. The point of this passage and this message of this section hinges on how hard these verses hit you. Gaining Christ is the most important thing to Paul. He is utterly single-minded about that. Christ is worth yearning for. Uh, John Piper, in his magnum opus, Desiring God, he writes this, it does no good to tell people to believe in the Lord Jesus. Context. The phrase is empty. My responsibility as a preacher of the gospel and a teacher in the church is not to preserve and repeat cherished biblical sentences, but to pierce the heart with biblical truth. In my neighborhood, every drunk on the street believes in Jesus. Drug dealers believe in Jesus. Panhandlers who haven't been to church in 40 years believe in Jesus. So I use different words to unpack what believe means. In recent years, I have started asking, do you receive Jesus as your treasure? Not just Savior, because everybody wants to avoid hell, but not be with Jesus. Or not just Lord, because they might submit begrudgingly. The key is, do you treasure him more than anything? Can you say with Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? And so church, one last question and one last illustration. If you're sitting in here and you're going to heaven one day, why is that? Why? Why are you going to heaven? Can you say with Paul that it's not because of having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law? That it, it actually comes through faith in Christ? The righteousness from God that depends on faith? Faith in Christ? I, I could hear Paul writing these words with the right passion, with the right zeal, with the right yearning, begging us to know this. Our confidence is found in Christ 
I recently saw a video clip that was shared by a friend. It was so incredibly good. I shared it too, so maybe you saw it as well. It was a short sermon clip by one of my favorite preachers, a guy up in Cleveland named Alistair Begg. He was using the thief on the cross, uh, the man that died right next to Jesus um, and later found himself in paradise with Jesus. He was using his story to highlight everything we've just said. Okay? And, and I'm asking you to take the bigger picture of this. All right? And I'll repeat this illustration here word for word so I don't mess it up because it's that good. He says, if you were to die tonight and you were trying to gain entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answered that, and I answered that, in the first person, we'd immediately go wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith. Because I am this, because I've done that, because I did that, because I didn't do that. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he, think about the thief on the cross. I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how'd that shake out for you? Because you were just cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You've never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, and yet, you made it. Like, you made it. How did you make it? Like, how? I mean, how? And so that's, that's what the angel must have said. You, you know, well, what are you doing here? I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, excuse me while I go get my supervisor. Supervisor comes. So just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Never heard of it. Okay, let, let's, let's, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, on what basis are you here? And that thief says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. I cannot get over that punchline. That is a man worth yearning for, and that is a message worth rejoicing in. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these words, these extremely Christ-centered words. How it encourages us to know you and your son. Lord, I pray for your people in here today. Give us great confidence in you. Confidence when we're fearful. Help us to turn our eyes and hearts and our affections away from worthless things, things that we think are advantages. Help us to behold you and yearn for you. There is nothing compared to you. You alone give salvation. You alone give
give us the gift of righteousness. A righteousness that gives us perfect standing with you. Because and only because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for these people. Lord, I want to especially lift up our brother and our friend Gerard, who it's his last Sunday with us. We thank you so much for the time that we've had as a church family with him and his sweet, sweet family. Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you have given Gerard. Lord, simply thank you for saving him. Thank you that his confidence is in you and you alone. Lord, as he and his family move away, we pray that you would continue to encourage him with the sustaining power of your gospel. We thank you so much for that message. We pray that in his name. Amen.